everybody, this is Chad, and I want to know. I got a new friend here, actually a little bit of an older friend, uh, Steve Critchley. Um, he's a mediator uh, that he learned through uh, the Canadian military. Um, he's done international mediation, 28 years in the Canadian military, basic training instructor. He's been deployed to Egypt, Cyrus, and Bosnia, and he's the co-founder of CAMPRAXIS, who support first responders and veterans with PTSD and OSI. How's it going, Steve? Very good. Did I mess anything up? No, that's all very good. Sweet, sweet. Uh, so why don't, uh, we start with your military background? Cause, uh, I've heard some stories. Um, I've been around you while you shared some stories and, uh, it was a pretty, um, decorated career. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's one way to describe it, I suppose. No, it all started, uh, when, uh, we were in Kelowna, BC. Yeah. And I'm 16 years old and needed something to do. Uh, needed cash. Uh, <laughs> saw this advertisement in the local paper about joining the reserves, yeah. and thought, "Well, eh, just go check it out." And uh, I went down to the armories in Kelowna, and uh, it was a few years ago. And uh, <laughs> I was bit by the bug. I uh, spent four years with the British Columbia Dragoons. Yeah. And during that time, I was amazed that uh, at the age of 17, I was carrying a weapon uh, for the Montreal Olympics, providing security at all the training sites for all these international athletes. It was uh, quite eye-opening. I uh, I just about joined the reserves in Kelowna, actually. Um, uh, while I was there, I was a sales rep for UAP Napa, and oh. I was looking for a career change. So I I had gone down to the reserves to see if that was my my path, and I was super super impressed with what you got to do as a reserve and how the program was set up. And then I had an opportunity in Calgary, so I ended up coming back here to make a little bit more money. But uh, um, I think I would have really enjoyed it. It it. It was uh, perfect for a high school student. Yeah. Um, summer deployments, summer work. Uh, you made a lot of cash as a young individual. Yeah. Uh, enabled me to buy my first car, which somehow ended up wrapped around a tree. <laughs> and uh, But out of that opportunity, I was able to go to Germany, down to the States, uh, over to Egypt. Uh, so I got to do a bit of world traveling all before the age of 20. Brilliant. So it was at the age of 20, uh, I was able to join the regular force, direct entry, which meant Friday in Kelowna, I was a master corporal with the British Columbia Dragoons. Monday morning, I was a no-hook trooper in Calgary with the Lord (laughs) Strathcona's horse. So it was a bit of a culture shock, to say the least. Uh, moving down to, I don't want to say a peon position, but bottom of the totem pole too, I'm guessing, eh? Oh, very much so. It, yeah. it was, you're right back at the bottom. Um, I was fortunate though. Didn't take me long before I was on, uh, at that time, it was referred to as the combat leaders course. Cool. Um, and it was an 11 week course in Calgary. And for 10 of those weeks, I was confined to barracks on the course. Okay. So... It was really interesting. I was married at that time, had a young daughter, and for 10 weeks, even though I'm in the same city as my family, I wasn't allowed to go home. It was quite interesting. Especially with a baby in the house or a young girl in the... You know, it was was a bit of a shock. And eventually, though, uh, that course ended, did well. Uh, And then uh, 
because I was a direct entry, I never did go through Cornwallis, which is where basic training was held at the time in Nova Scotia. Uh, So in uh, 1983, they sent me as uh, a master corporal to go be an instructor in Cornwallis, a place that I had never been before. Do I remember right um, you saying that you were the youngest uh, uh, basic trainer? No, it was uh, I was one of the youngest sergeants because okay. uh, my last year in Cornwallis, I was promoted to sergeant. Yeah, and uh, it was interesting being basically the youngest member of the warrant and sergeants mess. Yeah, uh, and it provided some challenges. I would um, imagine it was interesting, and then as soon as I got. Uh, back to Calgary later that year, they sent me back to Petawawa. Where's that? In Ontario. Okay. And that's where uh, the 8th Canadian Hussars were based, and they were moving that regiment to Germany, large Germany, to take over from the Royal Canadian Dragoons. Problem was... Your old troop. Well, no, no, that's the Royal Canadian Dragoons is a regular force unit. Oh, okay, okay. I was with the British Columbia ah, okay. Dragoons. there you go. So with that, uh, they had sent, the 8th Canadian Hussars had sent over most of their senior NCOs uh, in advance to uh, taking over from the other regiment, which meant they had no one left to do some trade training for their uh, new crewmen. So I ended up back in Ontario once again, working with the 8th Canadian Hussars. And then shortly after that, uh, actually, I think it was the next year, I went back to Germany uh, with a troop from the Strathconas uh, to take part in one of the Reforger exercises with, at that time, with our new weapon systems and such. So it was all very interesting stuff. So I've been fortunate. What, what, What was Germany like? So this would have been in the 80s? In the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've had the opportunity to be on three different reforger exercises, twice as a reservist and once as a rig force. The exercises there were completely across civilian land. So you'd have the whole country, more or less, that you could drive your tanks, armored vehicles, <laughs> anything across, uh, and you would be... Uh, either the NATO forces taking on the imaginary enemy, <laughs> or you could be part of the enemy forces taking on the NATO forces. Oh, very cool. And with that, it was uh, massively huge exercises uh, with all the different NATO countries involved. And it was really interesting that uh, most of the time I was with the uh, reconnaissance squadron, so we'd be hiding in farmers' barns and such, our vehicles and sleeping there. And the locals know this is going on? Like that's, so that you're just walking across people's lands, hiding in their barns, under their cars, whatever you needed to do. In their backyards, wherever you needed to be. Yeah. Uh, and it was an accepted part of uh, the Cold War deterrence yeah. for the Warsaw Pact. Yeah. Um, the interesting part was, is the exercises always stopped for the weekend. So we would, uh, on the Friday evening, because that way the Germans, the locals and such were able to travel about, they'd have their weekends. Yeah. Uh, and so we would leaguer or, or all our vehicles in in a certain formation would park in fields and such. Uh, we'd set up tents and all the locals would come around and 
check us out. And, you know, sometimes they'd open your tent to take a look inside while you're inside trying to sleep or change or something like that. Unbelievable. The best part was, is if your vehicle somehow had a mechanical failure in front of a gas stuff. Yeah. That you'd end up inside the gas stuff with some of the good German beer. Um, <laughs> it was all good. <laughs> yeah. and, and the locals were very, very friendly. Yeah. And it was uh, uh, just an amazing time. And it's a very different world uh, as Cold War deterrence compared to what we see in Canada. What I understand, I watched a documentary about this, and Germany has like owned all their badness. Like they're like, this is who we were. This is what we did. They have plaques everywhere talking about the families that were um, um, killed. I guess uh, uh, um, in in each town, each house, everything. So they've literally told their story the way the rest of the world sees their story and uh, the German population understand this is where we come from but we don't want to go back there again they're like the epitome of, of understanding your own background and not repeating it very much so they, they were very much aware of the challenges of their past and how to move forward and recognizing that you know, the Iron Curtain was real. The threat from Warsaw Pact was real. Yeah. Um, deterrence was required, and uh, it came at a price. Right. Uh, and with that, eventually, uh, as the, the, the Soviet Union broke apart, the need for such a large NATO presence uh, diminished. Yeah. Now, in just last week, the Americans announced how they're once again looking at how to move large forces into Western Europe should the need arise. Okay. Uh, The world today is not as nice as it was 10, 15 years ago. No. And because of that, uh, there's the need to be able to stand up to International bullies, as it were. Yep, some tyranny. I uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, uh, they're they're right now. Twitter's on the line because of the amount of amount that Twitter can be used against um, uh, politicians and and voting uh, throughout the world. They set up these bots, and they they create havoc within the community. And so, uh, I think his name's Jack Dorsey, the owner of uh, or the the founder of uh, Twitter is under a lot of pressure because of what's happening all over the world and how they're trying to control the U.S. and Canada and everything else. So it, it is a scary world out there. And uh, um, I don't want to get into camp practices too quickly, but I got to meet a bunch of uh, first responders and a couple of veterans when I went to the camp practice course. And I'll tell you, we're some kind of thankful for what uh, the Canadian military has done uh, worldwide. We're, we're very fortunate to have a, a highly professional uh, Canadian Armed Forces. Yeah. Uh, the people involved uh, are very dedicated, very well trained. Um, the support uh, is a bit different for Canada than yeah. it is, say, for other nations who have been more or less on the front lines. Uh, Canada has been very lucky to be isolated geographically yeah. uh, from a lot of the other immediate turmoil that is encountered. And it is interesting, uh, as we have Canadian troops in the Ukraine right now, working with other NATO allies uh, to help train Ukrainian 
armed forces up to our level of professionalism, one of the biggest challenges has been uh, negative, false social media posts okay. coming from the East. Yeah, And it's something that uh, we've had to send, Canada has had to send people into our units to help counter the uh, attacks that appear on social media. Right. Uh, as a uh, uh, political weapon used by basically Russia right. to undermine the value of Canada's presence in helping reinforce the Soviets, or sorry, reinforce the Ukrainian forces right. from the, uh, the, the Russians. Also in Latvia, the same challenges are in Latvia. Uh, and as it is now, there's concerns about uh, social media attacks uh, in uh, the Far East. So it's, it's a nonstop problem that you can't ignore. It's a new weapon. Well, I was just going to say, it's a fully new weapon. How do you even combat something like that, right, without having the founder of Twitter on board with you or Facebook or whoever uh, is out there that uh, they, they have to be willing to work with it? And they all try to be a global company because financially it makes sense to be global, right? Uh, but uh, we, we need to protect Canadians and, and Americans from, from the, that, that type of tyranny that's going on and not buy into these, I want to say fake news, but... It's an overused term, but fake news. And unfortunately, it's real. There are people who have uh, nefarious aims and desires that could cause great damage to Canada, to our uh, our elections, our economy, yeah. uh, the fears of even our, our uh, uh, power grid being mm-hmm. attacked. Yep. Uh, so these are real, and uh, we have to keep looking at ways to defend ourselves. Yeah, exactly. So you must still follow a lot of what's happening with the Canadian military. Like, even though you're retired from the military, you've got to be up to date on everything, I imagine. We, or I try to stay pretty well up to date as much as I can. I have friends now deployed overseas. Yeah. Uh, People I've worked with or people I've trained uh, or family friends, uh, sons of my friends or daughters of my friends that are now deployed. Yeah. So it's a, a challenge to try and stay abreast of what's the latest terminology, equipment and lingo and who's where. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So after uh, you did your training um, or you spent your time in Germany, came back to uh, Ontario again, then, then where'd you go or then what'd you do? Well, I was back, I came back to Alberta uh, in Alberta for a while. Then I was posted out to New Brunswick as an instructor at the uh, Armored Tactics School. Uh, spent a few years out there and then it was back to Calgary, uh, back to the regiment, back uh, deploying again, uh, then to Bosnia. Uh, back from Bosnia, and then uh, I think it was after that, it was posted to Suffield, which is just west of Medicine Hat, Alberta here. Um, Spent a few years in Suffield and back to Calgary. When the regiment moved to Edmonton, I uh, returned to Calgary to work with the reserves. So you might say I sort of started with the reserves and I ended with the (laughs) reserves. And so I retired from the Canadian Armed Forces in 2003. Oh, wow. It's a while ago. It's... Seems like yesterday, but it has been a yeah. couple of years. When uh, when were you in Bosnia? I was in Bosnia in '94. Okay, and so, that that was a peacekeeping uh, mission there, right? 
Uh, I think they called the term peacemaking. Okay. Tour. Um, because uh, there was no peace there, so peacekeeping is a little bit of a lame term. It, the idea was to try and enforce uh, ceasefire agreements that were uh, local okay. and then to create more opportunities to expand our presence. Um, whether it be into Serb territory, Croatian territory, Bosnian yeah. Muslim territory, uh, it was to keep pushing our boundaries farther and farther out yeah. so that there was uh, a greater area of safety for uh, the folks living in that country. Yeah, it was quite a brutal, um, I don't know, I want to call it a war. Oh, it was a war. It, it was, was an all-out yeah. war. It was uh, an ethnic war. Yeah. Um, it was a, a country that Marshal Tito had held together with tyranny. And it was an artificial country created at the end of World War II. Okay. When the uh, main hammer, Tito, died, yeah. uh, the country basically started falling back to its original ethnic groups, ethnic borders. Yeah. So you had, shall we say, the Croatians, which had originally been supported by the Germans, the Serbians, uh, originally supported by the Russians, and then the large Muslim uh, ethnic group on its own. And so all those different political tensions just exploded. Yeah. And it was very ugly. There were no innocents. The, yeah. All three of the warring factions were just as guilty as each other over the uh, use of ethnic cleansing, murder, uh, how they treated people, uh, their prisoner war camps. It was just a very, very brutal, brutal, brutal war. I had met a young veteran uh, when I was living in Kelowna in the early 2000s, late 90s, that had uh, um, been to the the. the the war in Bosnia, and uh, he was part of a, a therapy group. They would fly him to Vancouver once a week and um, uh, help him get over what he saw and what he did and what he was part of. Uh, he, he was doing really, really well uh, compared to what a lot of guys. He would show me some Christmas cards he got from people that were... I don't even know if I want to say them. Like it was horrific saying, you know, things like "Hope you don't get any dead baby on you this Christmas," and 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 we'll get to the camp practice stuff because I think this is a big part of. I saw it in him way back then. Um, uh, the the stress that he was under even years after being away from the war, um, and then more so him telling me about what his uh, um, fellow soldiers and veterans were going through was was difficult. So it sounded like um, a more brutal war. Not that I know anything about war, but uh, uh, maybe more brutal for our times. It, it was to be the honest. Hard facts is. I think that war in Bosnia had a greater impact and a faster response because it was a European country okay. and not some third world country right. in Africa or the far east. Yeah. Uh, so it had some sort of uh, uh, moral obligation for the Europeans and North Americans to find a way to be involved in helping overcome that war. Um, the interesting thing about that is at the end of that tour, our battle group commander was diagnosed with PTSD. And most of us were sitting there going, hmm, I don't see how he got it. We were the ones that wrote in the front lines. Right. Uh, 
to demonstrate just how ignorant we were understanding the injury. And since then, as I've come to discover, like even today, uh, a large number of my peers have been diagnosed with an operational stress injury, which is any mental health injury incurred in uniform, such as PTSD. So a lot of the guys I served with are, in fact, uh, receiving help for their uh, PTSD. It had to be pretty rare back then in the the 90s and the early 2000s for even that diagnosis, isn't it? It was pretty rare um, to have an official diagnosis. It wasn't well understood as it is today. Um, Now we've got the, the terminology that includes all the mental health injuries, which can be something like uh, bipolar depression, aggression, uh, anxiety, all the different forms of mental stresses that leave an injury with the individual. So we've come uh, such a far, far, far way uh, ahead of the game now. Uh, And it's interesting to see that slowly the stigma is being overcome. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think about what we know today, um, uh, or, you know, say the last 20 years, uh, what we've learned and all the wars fought before that, how many people were suffering in silence, just not thinking they could talk about it, that they could, you know, express how they were feeling. And even if they did, would anyone know what to do with it? But, you know, people that came out of the First and Second World War, what, what, what would anyone have done back then? There was a lot of uh, uh, studies on this, and and it goes, as long as people have been throwing rocks at each other (laughs) with the intent of harm, uh, there has been uh, OSI, or operational stress injuries, PTSD of a various form. Um, And it goes back to World War I being referred to as soldier's heart, uh, and World War II, battle that. fatigue. Um, okay, I've they, heard that. And the idea was, is you got them out of the, the situation, got them to relax, yeah. and then return them as fast as you can back to battle. The And uh, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to uh, visit Paparangue in uh, uh, Belgium. And it was the... R&R, rest and relaxation spot for Commonwealth troops during World War I. Yeah. Uh, not far from Ypres and Passchendaele and such. The other interesting thing about Paparangue is that's also where they were holding soldiers who were sentenced to death for cowardice, for being AWOL and such. Um, wow. So we got to visit one of the cells where soldiers were held uh, just before their execution, uh, and their names often were engraved in the walls, uh, where they were from, uh, their um, cap badges. Yeah. All, just about every one of them expressed uh, great pride in their units and in their country. And then basically the next day, they were shot. Unbelievable. And for being injured, essentially. The, and there are documented cases where individuals were acknowledged to have been suffering battle fatigue, as we would call it, or being uh, understood to be suffering from PTSD, but they were shot anyways. Wow. And so it's uh, uh, quite different to understand now uh, how these injuries affect uh, individuals. Yeah. So it's it's such a 
a brutal injury in the sense that uh, this injury affects different people differently. Right. So there's no quick fix. There's no quick diagnosis. It's it's basically the circuitry of the mind has been uh, interrupted, uh, parts of it perhaps destroyed. And so you can't see the injury. So it takes a lot of work to try and figure out just how is this injury affecting this particular person and what will work for this particular person to overcome it. Yeah. That, it, yeah, it blows my mind. One, I'm, I'm a little bit dumbfounded finding out that people are shot for for the injury that they had. And not that the people doing the shooting were necessarily at blame either because they probably didn't fully understand. Um, it's so good to hear how far we've come with um, understanding it, being able to support people. What I saw most, and we might as well get right into camp practice, but what I saw when I was uh, went through the three-day course with you guys was how it affected their families. Um, it, it was heart-wrenching. We had one veteran and then no two veterans and a police officer when i was at the course i believe um and uh to me what the families were going through um was as bad as what the the first responder or the veteran was going for and that's sort of what you guys are basing it around right just trying to get families back together or communicating better communicating it's the understanding that uh this injury is a family injury yeah, uh, it's not just the individual who's been diagnosed. The reality is, is this injury affects the whole family, and so what we're doing is teaching very specific skills to help the individuals who are injured reconnect and be able to have at least one effective conversation a day with the person most important to them, their spouse, or partner, or other family member. One a day. Because if you can have one, you can have two. Two, right. And if you can have two, then you're set up for success. Yeah. And the understanding here is the definition of an effective conversation is a conversation where you both walk away satisfied after the conversation <laughs> yeah. that you're in a better place yeah. after the conversation compared to where you were before the conversation. Notice we don't say happy because to say you'd always be happy, happy is to blow pixie dust up your butt and these folks deserve better than that. Right, right. Yeah. The, I guess the one little baby step at a time, right, is, is just trying to get each, each conversation a little bit better than the last conversation to where you can have good conversations or more good communication regularly. And that's reality. And the unfortunate aspect of this injury is that someone who's been diagnosed, for example, with PTSD, if you're not talking, you're going to die. Yeah. And the only way to change that is to help the injured relearn how to have a conversation, right. whatever it looks like. Yeah. Recognizing a successful conversation can look very different for different people. Yeah. And so it's not trying to impose uh, um, cookie-cutter outcomes here. It's all about helping people figure out for themselves what a successful conversation looks like. Yeah. And with that, also teaching people when not to talk. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a good skill to know. Uh, I, I told you beforehand, and, and anyone that knows me personally knows, I stole so much from the, the three days I spent with you guys. Uh, I think you guys had let someone else uh, outside of the uh, veterans and first responders take the course a couple weeks or a couple months before I was there. And one thing that you guys noticed with that person is that um, it, it almost 
gave them PTSD, that, that they were very stressed from, from being in the course. You guys wanted to debrief me almost on every break and see how I was doing, which I really appreciated. Um, I walked out of there pretty heartbroken by the time the weekend was done. I was mentally and, and physically drained, and I was just there listening. So um, it, it was important what you guys were doing, and like again, I stole so much. So Number one, um, I say this to my police officer friends now, and they they tell me, I I suggest they call you guys because you're the professionals, but I'm like, you guys are trained, and this is directly from you, to think in black and white. There's no colors in the rainbow for you. Exactly. It's right or it's wrong. It's my way. It's the highway. Uh, that That is very much what you would think a police officer should do or a, a military officer should do is they, they have to think in black and white very quickly uh, to make decisions. Very much so. And it's all problem solving, taking control of a situation. Right. And once again, it's all the right way or wrong way. Yeah. which is black or white. You don't want to do that with your wife or your husband. It or... doesn't work well <laughs> no. in a family. Um, and, and usually uh, it's individuals not recognizing they're treating their families that way and why they end up losing their families. Right. Uh, and it's not intentional. It's just we have to train people to see the world black and white Um in order to be effective at their job. The only problem is, is they're effectively brainwashed. And when we're done with them, there's no deprogramming. Right. It's just sort of a pat in the butt and say, okay, it's been nice knowing you. And Go by, join the other world. And by we, you mean the military, the police forces, the RCMP, all of those. They train the their people up to be a certain way. And then they don't help untrained them when they come out. Very much so. And that's now being recognized as a major uh, difficulty. The Canadian Armed Forces is standing up their new transition groups. uh, And they're going to have several of these locations across the country to help uh, the military transition back to civilian life from the military. Um, And hopefully this isn't just a bunch of new wallpaper covering cracked foundations. Right, right. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk more about the program and what I saw there. If any time I'm crossing the line, just say, hey, stop, and I'll stop. Um, The one thing that uh, I stole right away from my family, and I brought it to work a couple years later, a year later, was the um, no power plays, no walkaways, and no blame. And so you described it as looking through a scope, and like dead center was no blame, on the far left was no power plays, and the far right was no walkaways. Did I I get that correct? Pretty close, pretty close. Uh, Anyone who's done any uh, training with weapons, firearms, and such, anytime you're, you're deploying those weapon systems, as it were, you're only allowed to aim the weapon so far to the left that's your left of arc you're only allowed to aim so far to the right that's your right of arc yeah and your center of arc your main point that you're watching is your center of arc yeah so on the program we've introduced for individuals when they have a conversation their left of arc is no walkaways in other words when you sit down to have these conversations you both agree that you will remain in the conversation until you reach a resolution that satisfies both of you. Right. The right of arc is no power plays, which means no imposed one-sided solutions. Yeah. In other words, don't treat your family like the troops. Yeah. And the center of arc is no blame. Right. What's more, <clears throat> excuse me, what's more important for your life? 
to be right all the time yeah. or to have someone at your side who supports you. Right. And so if, if you recognize the value of having that person beside you, being right isn't as important as what can we do about it next time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love those three statements. It, it blows my mind how simple it is and how well it works. And so right away, I brought it into my family and uh, we talked about this. Like, you know, as a, as a guy, there's lots of times where I just want to be like, ah, oh, whatever, and just kind of blow everybody off and go about my own way. And now I just say, hey, listen, guys, I, I can't focus on this right now. Can we talk about it later? Yeah. And then when I can focus on it, I can focus on it. That way they're not going to be frustrated. Sometimes they're still frustrated. <laughs> but at least when we talk, I can be fully engaged in the conversation and ready to, to, to be my part and help support them. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole idea. The whole idea is about creating an opportunity for good information yeah. uh, to be present. If you've got good information, then you can make good decisions. So what does it take to create an environment where you can exchange good information, not blame. Yeah. Uh, the thing about blame is if you're always looking over your shoulder at yesterday, you're not going to see tomorrow coming. I forgot about that one. They, um, one of the, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went. They were talking about walking a tightrope or on a top of a thin wall. And if you kept looking behind you at blame, are you going to be able to stay your path on that wall? And I just thought that was brilliant. Like if we're always looking for a reason to, to blame somebody and like, well, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't, if you didn't say that, or if, if you didn't do this, well, there's nothing you can do to change what has happened. So just stay focused on the future. Uh, that that one, I remember that now was brilliant. Very much so. It's all about, the whole program is all about acknowledge your past. You can't change it. Right. To where are your boots at now? Yeah. And what do you want to do with them tomorrow? Right. In other words, uh, helping people forget the big picture, because it's going to change. Life is going to throw you curveballs anyways. Yeah. Um, so what can you do today that would be a small success that will help you have a small success tomorrow? Right. And if you keep adding up all those small successes, just like grains of sand, you end up on a pretty good beach. Exactly, yeah. No, so. uh, I, I, I remember it all fondly as it's coming back. <laughs> We're, we're fortunate that we're able to draw upon a lot of analogies and word pictures yeah. that can help people uh, situate themselves in a way that they have a better understanding of their injury. Yeah. And the thing that's absolutely crucial to this program is that spouses are equals. They're not there as a support mechanism. It's not your private. It's not that at all. Yeah. They're, they are there because they're your equal, yeah. not your subordinate or superior, and that you two individuals, if you can work together as a team, then you're going to overcome the injury for sure. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't mean people leave the program all happy, happy. Yeah. Um, what we're doing is putting people in a place where they understand the realities of the injury, and we've given them specific skills to improve upon and it's now up to them to make those skills work for themselves it's not a couple's retreat because right. there's just some people that shouldn't be together <laughs> True enough. Uh, and we're not going to pretend uh you know that's not a reality yeah um but i think the big thing to understand is actually what the name can practice means yes 
So the name CAN Praxis, CAN stands for the Canadian can-do attitude. In other words, 101 years ago this month, we were told, or Canada was told, it was impossible to take Vimy Ridge. Canada took it. Yeah. Praxis is to take, it's a Latin word, to take theory and put it into practice. So essentially, can praxis means walk the talk. Yeah. So the whole idea of the program is walk the talk. So the program itself uh, has uh, risen through adversity. I mean, it took us three years before we were even able to run our first program. And at that time, uh, what is now 3rd Div, or 3rd Canadian Division, it was called Land Forces Western Area, the commander had actually ordered all the units not to talk to Can Praxis. Oh, wow. Um, because of the stigma, the fear, uh, that we were actually interfering with the health of uh, veterans and soldiers, etc., yeah. to the point where now the current commander of 3rd Canadian Division, Brigadier General Trevor Kidu, absolutely loves Can Praxis, is a huge supporter. Yeah. And so uh, overcoming that adversity to be accepted is now our challenge with the first responder world. Yeah, yeah. Are you seeing much of a difference? I, I have a few friends that are police officers in CPS and RCMP, um, and I met some guys from uh, back east and some uh, OPP and stuff like that. Not OPP. What was it? I can't remember the name of the... There, there was York Regional. We had some folks there. We had Waterloo. Uh, we've had... Wish uh, I had a better memory. <laughs> we had, had uh, Toronto, on uh, Ottawa Police, London. Yeah. So we've had quite a few. <coughs> are, we, are we seeing... Um, are starting to see some difference? Are you getting more police officers in um, uh, that you used to? We're, we're seeing uh, a steady stream of inquiries. Okay. Uh, from first responders as well as the veterans. Yeah. The challenge is Alberta still seems to be behind, far behind, when it comes to uh, addressing operational stress injuries and PTSD. There's a lot of uh, niceties put in place, yeah. uh, um, some programs that are supposed to help the challenge here is most of these programs are like a thermometer. They're not a treatment. They're not therapy. They're not uh, educational in overcoming the injury. Most of these programs are just uh, a little bit of preventative measures, which with limited success and a whole lot of being able to recognize when the injury is uh, present. The challenge is now Providing the correct programming, therapies, therapists, etc., cetera, uh, for these folks. And once again, Alberta's lagging behind the rest of the country. I would imagine diagnosing it properly is a challenge in itself. Like how do you, I mean, the normal people in their everyday lives will have trauma, will have head injuries, will have all kinds of things, right? Divorces, the loss of a child. Um, how, how do you determine or how do you diagnose whether somebody um, is, is suffering, I don't know how to word this, because how, how, I don't want to sound it like I'm trying to call people fake because I'm not. Um, I get that it's a stressful job, but there's got to be some people trying to take advantage of, you know, oh, I got PTSD, yeah. I can't work, or I need, you know, disability, or I need whatever. It's like 
anything else. You have good doctors and you have bad doctors. You have good yeah. therapists, bad therapists. Uh, there is uh, uh, the medical world does have uh, a specific uh, diagnosis or or um, what's like as I'm not a therapist nor medical. Uh, I want to make sure I get this correct. Uh, there are specific symptoms that yeah. you can look for that uh, if you have out of these five different types of symptoms, uh, if you have a certain number of them, then that's a diagnosis for an operational stress injury. Okay. Keeping in mind, these injuries can occur over a long period of time. It doesn't have to be just one incident. Right. Uh, and it doesn't have to be from a single violent incident. Uh, it can come from uh, uh, abuse of authority over many years, harassment and such. Uh, and it can manifest itself in so many different ways. It can be very difficult to ensure that you're dealing with the correct diagnosis. Yeah. So when people come to us, uh, we, they have to confirm to us that they've officially been diagnosed with an operational stress injury. Okay. If they haven't, then they can't come on the program until they have been. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for this is there are other injuries or medical conditions that could mirror an, op an operational stress injury. For example, perhaps they have tumor, yeah. for example, could cause some mental stresses that mirror an OSI. Uh, if that's the situation, our program isn't going to help them. Right, they right. need the correct medical assistance, yeah. uh, diagnoses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to deal with that type of situation. Is that part of the medical system? They would do CT scans or brain scans to, to see whether there, there was something else maybe causing the, the stress or the, the mental uh, issues that they're having? It can be. It's not in all situations. Okay. And it's... Uh, also, depending on uh, how the injury plays out and what, what, what are the symptoms, etc., there are some, uh, for example, on one program, uh, we were giving a, a, a visual demonstration uh, using a flip chart and, and uh, sort of drawing or mapping out how the brain works okay. when it's encountering problems with an OSI. And at the end of that particular lesson, uh, one of the participants came over and showed us uh, the day before he came on a program, his MRI, which yeah. is trying to track his OSI. Uh, the image of his MRI was exactly the same as what we had drawn on the flip chart. Wow. So out of that, we understand that in a lot of these situations, there's physical damage that occurs to the brain. Yeah. So CT scan or MRIs are, are helping uh, map these injuries. And they're also helping to map uh, what's sort of what's known as plasticity. Okay. Plasticity is rewiring of the brain. Yeah. So with these injuries, as you saw in the program, we talk about how uh, the brain is trying to rewire itself around the damaged area. Okay. And sometimes the brain goes down a cul-de-sac or a dead end yeah. or just ends up in the wrong direction and so has to re uh, rewire itself again. And so it can take a great deal of time and this will move at a different speed for different people. So once again, the challenges of this injury is it's extremely complex 
and so differential upon each situation. So there's no quick fixes. Right. And that's why communication is so important. You right. need to be able to talk about how something is working for you in a positive way, uh, understanding that this injury will cause people to see everything in a negative light. Okay. And the brain has to be retaught how to see the positives that are in a person's life, wow. no matter how big or how small. Uh, it, it's just the nature of the injury. Yeah. Uh, and that's why a lot of these injuries can, for example, mirror bipolar depression. Very similar. Wow. I, I remember um, one of the drills that we did was talking about communication. And so um, you would have... Um, a horse on a lead, and then uh, you and your partner would each have a lead coming off one side, and you guys walk the horse through like an obstacle course. It was like a Z, and then you had to step over a fence pole, and you had to go around a barrel and go back down the same path. Sounds really simple, but um, when you're blindfolded, it's a challenge. And uh, the one thing that you guys did, and again, if I'm giving away too much, just just let me know. No, it's all good. That... Um, uh, I got to do this uh, with one of the people there. And so uh, I got, I'm trying to remember if I was blindfolded. I don't think I was blindfolded. I was giving the directions. So we had to ask, what do you need from me? So the person that I was working with was holding on a horse that I had to lead them through this obstacle course. They were completely blindfolded. So I had to give them really good directions. The other person had to explain to me how they want to be communicated to. And then as you're going through that, you have to, um, make sure that you're telling the right thing, give them the right directions. And then the one thing that I noticed was I'm 10, 20 feet away from the person walking the obstacle course, mm-hmm. given directions. So I'm not seeing the obstacle course from their view. And so when I say, you know, go turn 10 degrees, maybe it's 15 or 20 degrees. And so they end up kicking a board or tripping or whatever that, um, communication isn't just as simple as saying what's on your mind. It's, it's much more complicated than that. And one of the main things about that uh, exercise is understanding what does someone actually need in yeah. a conversation versus what do you think they need <laughs> right. in a conversation. And the easiest way to get clarity is simply ask them. Right. And if we go back to how we say a lot of our injured participants see the world black and white, they're pretty used to being very directional in their personal lives as well. And it can take an awful lot of hard work for those individuals, especially with the injury to recognize not to impose their assumptions rather to ask and inquire. Uh, And that's why that story of uh, or, or that exercise about what do you need to give you a quick idea of, how powerful that exercise can be. Uh, a few years ago, we had a, a couple. Uh, they couldn't sleep in the same bed. The veteran, uh, or a very large man, uh, would have night terrors and sweats every night. Yeah. So every night, he would thrash about the bed, uh, kicking, waving his arms, uh, yelling and screaming every night. His wow. wife could not sleep in the same room as him. Uh, I, and they were very much affected by that program, uh, can practice. And with that, also that particular exercise of asking each other, what do you need? Not imposing your will, rather asking what the other person needs. Uh, About two weeks after the program, 
they've now been able to move into the same room, sleep in the same bed together. And uh, one night he started mumbling again in his sleep. Yeah. So she became obviously quite alarmed, yeah. fearful again, uh, and thinking, uh, we're right back where we started. And he, instead of screaming and thrashing, he just kept mumbling and mumbling and mumbling. So she was quite curious. So she leaned her ear over and placed her ear right next to his mouth. And what he was mumbling was, what do you need? Wow. So for him, the impact of understanding the need to ask rather than demand or direct was all important. And it changed their lives dramatically. I can imagine that just that simple asking would take so much pressure off a person, right? As a an A personality or an alpha personality that you always think you have to be in charge. And to, you know, I, I don't want to relate them to dogs, but in dog training, you want to take away the dog's duties so that they can calm down and do the stuff that you're asking them to do. And you almost want to do that for somebody that's under a tremendous amount of stress is, is remove some of that authority that they think they need to have, right? Where they, they you yeah. know, I, I can just say, you know what, what, what do you need from me today? Because I cannot figure out if you need me to do the dishes or vacuum or shut up or talk, just tell me what I need to do. And then that has to be so relieving to know that you don't have to have the answers every time. It's equally powerful for the spouse because if you have an injured individual that's starting to reach a crisis point, yeah. instead of the spouse saying, go do this or just calm down or take a breath, uh, it's a huge stress relief for the injured person if their spouse just says to them, what do you need right right now? What do you need right now? And often the answer is nothing. I just need to be in a quiet place for 10 minutes. Right. And now the spouse knows they don't need to do anything fancy, special. uh, There's no responsibility. All they have to do is just give that person the space and time they need to to ground themselves and be able to move forward. Uh, It takes an enormous amount of stress away from the spouses if they have a better understanding of what's going on with the injury and how to have conversations with the injury present. Right. The uh, The other big part that I remember and learned from there was the, the pressure and release part of the of the training course or the, the, the weekend. Um, so I got put through one of the drills where uh, there was a small pen, I want to say a 16 or 18 foot pen, um, a halflinger horse in there, which is what, a 1200 pound, 1400 pound horse. It's a, it's a big, uh, big animal, a little bit intimidating to be around. Um, and then in the middle of that pen, there was a whip. And so what I was told to do is walk in and go stand by the whip. Well, as I stood by the whip, the halflinger knows what that whip is for. And they start getting worked up and he starts running around the pen. And it's, it's pretty stressful to be inside there. And then I got the guidance to try to calm myself down and the horse slowed down a little bit. And then they, uh, I, I was, I was consciously thinking about my thoughts, like, you know, peace, love, no harm, all that. Like mm-hmm. anything that I was putting out, I wanted it to be calmness. Yeah. And then uh, I was directed to turn my back to the whip. And next thing you know, the horse just stopped. And that was it. The pressure was off. I had relieved this 1,400-pound animal from racing around the pen, and uh, which stressed me out. Um, and then once I realized what was going on, then it was it was much better. The horse was calm. I was calm. And then I could walk him out of the pen 
with no stress. The whole idea there, once again, is, you know, with that horse stick with the flag on it, you're scaring the animal or causing it to run away using pressure. Yeah. And then uh, when you release the pressure, the animal wants to be with you uh, if it thinks it can trust and respect you. Yeah. And if you can demonstrate the willingness to regain its trust and respect, uh, it'll offer you the opportunity once again to uh, reconnect. Uh, relearn that trust and respect. And that's basically why we're using horses. Uh, you might say our tagline quite simply is, is we're not into chasing uh, rainbows or hugging unicorns, you know, hold my hand, sing Kumbaya. You can get a slap upside the head. Yeah. You know, this, this injury is killing people. So we can't yeah. play games here. Right. Uh, th- there's nothing fancy about the horse read your aura measures your heartbeat. I shouldn't um, be laughing, but... <laughs> but no, seriously, it's not... That's it's how some people of, sell programs. There, there was one program out there where uh, uh, you lay on a table and the horse comes over and smells your aura and, and you're cured. And, and it's nothing but pure, utter garbage. Oh. And it's very stressful for us uh, because we're not using the horses to feel good, right. even though... Uh, Thanks to Dr. Brenda Abbey here in uh, Calgary, her research has shown that uh, when humans are around, the human brains went around, uh, uh, horses produce dopamine. And that's important for us because dopamine helps reconnect the higher functioning part of the brain with the primitive part of the brain, which often becomes separated during a a crisis or, or through this injury. Yeah. And so uh, we're using the horses specifically for very, very, very detailed reasons. Like to give you an example, the difference between a horse and a dog. If a dog loves you, you can kick it, beat it, stomp it. It'll always crawl back to you. Yeah. A horse, like a relationship, will eventually tell you to take a hike. Yeah. Uh, So horses are social animals. Uh, They're not loyal. They're like people. People aren't loyal. People work together out of trust and respect. Yes. and so horses, uh, they crave, thrive, need, depend on social interaction. Right. That's often why you'll see some horses, they have a stall mate or a, a, a friend, could be a goat, a donkey, a dog. Yeah, yeah. They, they need to connect with another animal. Um, so if you see a horse out in the field all day, every day, all by itself, that's actually punishment for that horse. That's like solitary confinement. Wow. It's hurting the horse. Um, the other thing about horses uh, is... They, in a group of horses, they'll have their own chain of command or pecking order. Yeah. So our folks that come from the uniform world, they're pretty comfortable with that. They get that yeah. really. Uh, and the third, probably the most important reason for using horses, even though they're social, uh, they are a uh, prey animal. And yeah. because of that, they're constantly assessing the situation, analyzing what's going on around them. They're always very observant and they're always looking for an escape route, Yeah. which is very similar to someone who's had the injury. Yeah. What we're doing on this program is helping people get to that place mentally and physically where the horse looks at them and says, you know what? You're worth the effort to relearn how to trust. Yeah. You're worth the effort to learn how to uh, relearn how to respect again. Yeah. With that, uh, if the horse believes that you're worth that effort, that horse will come up to you all on its own without a lead, without a rope, uh, because that horse sees value in you. Yeah. And if a horse can do that, 
there's every chance a relationship can as well. So powerful. I, I, I wanted to kind of go back to something you said about um, the horses aren't there to make you feel good and fluffy. And even though they sort of do, that's not the purpose behind them. Because there was one veteran that was at the uh, the weekend that I was there that was very stressed out by the horses. And it you could tell that he was a, a soldier at heart because mm-hmm. you could see the physical stress on him. And he did it anyways. Like they just... The, that type of person will power through nearly anything because that's what they're trained to do. So if you tell them, and he was very much on board of, of whatever you guys said, a uh, couple hours in, he was very on board. <laughs> we're, we, we're very used to people showing up who are quite skeptical. So we just tell people we eat skeptics for breakfast. Yeah, and, and definitely did. And it's not unusual that we get someone on the program who is uh, afraid of horses. And at the end of the program, we literally have to stop them from trying to stuff one in the <laughs> trunk of the car as they leave. So it's, it's quite fascinating. It's quite humbling yeah. to see the impact this has on the program. And the horses, they respond to, as you referred to earlier, is pressure and release. Right. In other words... Uh, if you act like a dickhead, the horse will treat you like a dickhead. Uh, <laughs> you can uh, beat a horse into submission, yeah. and first opportunity it has is it's going to get rid of you one yeah. way or another. Um, the other thing about that, though, is if, if you're an injured individual, say, who's uh, uh, sleeping all day, uh, you're on the, the computer all night, addicted to online gambling or whatever it is, uh, the horse is going to push you around. Yeah. So, so we're helping people understand what, what do you bring to a conversation before you even open your mouth? Right. Uh, are you putting pressure on the other person just by the way your body uh, language is portraying your thoughts, your, your, your emotions and such? Are you coming across very aggressive or, or are you someone that's uh, just shut down completely and everyone's pushing you around? Uh, the horses provide that instant in-your-face feedback because they don't have an agenda. They don't wear a wristwatch. Uh, They don't have a timetable to work to. Uh, What they do is if they trust and respect you, they will do anything in the world for you. And so on the program, you're not allowed to, one couple, as it were, isn't allowed to adopt one horse and just work with that horse the whole weekend. No. Uh, Just like uh, people... Horses have different personalities and moods. So when you're working with the horses, you come to realize your approach for some situations could be too strong. And in other situations, you need to be a little more assertive. And helping all of this is is the understanding that people will gain. There's a difference between being assertive and being aggressive. Right. Being assertive is standing up for yourself. Uh, and not being a floor mat for everyone else. Yeah. And at the same time, being assertive is being respectful to the other person's, what do you need? Yeah. Do, do you see that a lot with an injured person being a doormat, or does it normally go the other way? Yes. Yeah. For both. <laughs> yeah. It's it all over the map. Yeah. It's all over the map. We get veterans that uh, are, are completely shut down. Yeah. Or, or first responders. Uh, they're unable to carry on any form of a conversation. They lack emotions. Or we see the complete opposite. They're very dominating or domineering. Um, and, and at the same time, we see the same thing out of spouses. Like we have some veterans where the spouse tells them when to brush their teeth, what to eat, what clothes to wear, when to take a shower, when to go to bed. Um, and it's, it's just the nature of the injury and how it affects different people 
differently. And so they, they must all adapt as it's going on. Like I can imagine a spouse as as the injury gets worse or their their significant other starts changing from the injury, they're trying everything that they know to to try to make this better and for better or worse, the, they're changing in, in that situation too. Well, that, that's why we say it's a family injury. Yeah. Um, we run with a maximum of six couples. Yeah. On every program, every program, we have at least one suicidal individual and we're now seeing suicidal spouses. And it's not unusual on this program, the spouses tell us their bags are packed and they've got one foot out the door. So yeah. often this program is the extreme last ditch effort to try and maintain some semblance of, of a, a, a relationship and support for each other. Yeah. And so it's, it's very uh, traumatic and emotional these programs like you were mentioning we had an, an individual who came in to observe and, and he was doing some videoing and such we forgot he was there and like you mentioned it had a, a huge huge massive impact on him that we weren't aware of yeah uh, and so that's like when you were there observing and such that we've learned since then that anyone who's coming to sit in we have to debrief consistently yeah. to ensure that where they are and, and to help them ground out because on a program like this we bring all the emotions uh, and such to the surface and then we scratch the surface yeah um, but one thing we need to be extremely clear on that our facilitators are, are highly trained individuals right. they're not horse trainers using horses to train people they're they're, they're highly uh, trained people trainers using horses to train and educate people. The horses are more of a tool there than, than the, the lesson itself. It, exactly. The horses are a feedback machine that let you know how your approach uh, is working. If you're reacting to a situation emotionally or you uh, 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 or responding to a situation with logic and to recognize how much of your own life do you go through reacting or responding. And so that's why the, uh, the horse arena facilitator working with the uh, horses uh, has specialized equine training and is a experienced trauma psychologist okay. because you're involved in therapy. Uh, if you're not an experienced uh, therapist, it's not therapy. The classroom instructor, which is teaching the theory behind understanding the conflict, the crisis, and the communication, is either a, a veteran or a first responder with, uh, who is a qualified uh, mediator who is qualified to teach interpersonal conflict resolution. So the big thing to understand here is that skills are being taught on right, this program. Right. It's not an attend and feel good. Yeah. And it's not just stand by a horse and talk about your problems. It's understanding how to talk about those situations with the person that's most important to you. And at the same time, recognizing there are just sometimes you shouldn't talk. You should put the conversation on pause yeah. and come back to it tomorrow. The, the thing that I think shocked me the most coming out of there is that there was three couples when I was there. Um, one, for sure, only went for his wife. He just kind of thought, I'll just go to the weekend and, and put up with one of these yahoos are going to tell me, and uh, when we're done, I'll just go back to my regular life. We had uh, another fellow there that was a first responder, 
And he was super, super withdrawn. Um, he didn't want to talk. He didn't want to participate. I think he's the one the initiated. Like he knew he needed help, but once he got there, it almost seemed like it was too much. And then there was a, another guy there that was. I would uh, try to think of the right way to describe him. He was very over the top, meaning that uh, you you could see that all his nerves were being scratched at once. So he was very jittery. He wanted to talk a lot. And the program worked for all of them. Like, and I don't want to say work like it solved the problems, but as the, the program progressed, I watched each of those individuals change a little bit while they were there. Um, the, the guy that uh, only went for his wife said he had been in therapy for 25 years and never had as much change of thought as what he did when he was there. Um, the, uh, the other person, the first responder that was super, super quiet had some uh, I think big breakthroughs. He had some big meltdowns while he was there yep. as well. Um, uh, it, it blew my mind. Like the, the the program isn't specific for a type of injury. It was the the overall um, balloon that encompassed all the injuries that they could have from being in there. And it just seemed to to talk to every single person, including the spouses that 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 it really fed into their lives. When I got to have some personal time with them and just talk the they were legitimately excited about the tools they had leaving there. It was a situation where, where the program is all about providing good information so these folks can make good decisions. Right. Recognizing for each couple, as it were, um, that outcome can look very different for each of them. Yeah. That this is a program, we know it's not going to work for everyone, what we do know for a fact is you get out of it what you put into it. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier uh, about skeptics, uh, we expect people to be skeptical Yeah. and we trust the process, which I think you heard a fair bit. And <laughs> yeah. trust the process, trust the process, trust the process means that eventually one of the teaching moments, training moments, uh, uh, horse moments, therapy moments is going to resonate with an individual in a way that they're going to say, you know what, there's something in this for me and I like it. Yeah. I may not feel happy about it because we're not there to make people feel happy. Right. We're there to make people feel heard, understood, and acknowledged. Yeah. And if a person has that feeling that they've been heard, understood, and acknowledged, then they feel personal value. They yeah. feel part of something. And so it's that opportunity for these folks, many for the first time in maybe a decade or more, where they truly feel that they've been heard, understood, and acknowledged. Once they have a taste of that, they want more, which piques their curiosity, which creates the, the, the desire uh, to come back the next day. Right. So... The program is awesome. I think we could probably talk for another hour just about the program. Um, how many people, or what percentage of first responders or veterans do you think that are suffering? I would say, without a doubt, at least one in five, if not one in four. At least. Wow. The understanding being is this injury can manifest itself over one situation or over time. Right. The reality is no one who spends a career in uniform 
walks away without any baggage. Every person who puts on a uniform as an occupation, as an adult, will leave with some baggage. We all have some form of baggage. Whether Life it, leaves you with baggage. <laughs> exactly. And the, the challenge, once again, is because you've been taught to see the world black and white, that's baggage in itself. And how do you now rejoin the rest of the world, which sees all the colors of the rainbow? And that can be a huge, scary challenge. Yeah. So, so let's, you know, where we're going with this program, we're... Uh, some of the things that we're looking at is we're uh, working with our new facilitation teams uh, so that we have depth and background uh, to cover for situations where perhaps one of our facilitators becomes ill themselves. Um, We want to be able to ensure that we're always able to provide programs in a timely manner. So one of the new things we're also looking at is certifying a peer support team model so that uh, practitioners therapists can come to us, we'll be able to certify them in our approach on how we deal with these injuries so that they can go back anywhere in Canada and now run peer support groups that we feel would be much more effective. And the next thing that we're looking at is looking to uh, connect with the university in providing uh, a program that involves the children of the injured. Oh, wow. So that's going to be our next big step uh, is everyone's asked us always, how do you help the children? Yeah. And our answer to that right away is the best way to help the kids is to help the parents first. Right. Now that we've got the parents in a good place, how can we help them help their children? Mm. So we're going to be sitting down with uh, uh, some therapists who specialize with with children and put together a program uh, in the future. Uh, it's going to take a while. Yeah. Uh, I've had to learn patience. Uh, it's a very different in the civilian world to the military world where you can get things done right now. Right. Uh, in, in, in the rainbow world, as it were, the, <laughs> it takes a little longer to, to achieve those aims, which I'm comfortable with now. Yeah. Uh, it just takes a while to learn to be patient. Uh, I, I got some things I want to get to. So I wanted to back you up a little bit because I know there were some studies being run on this, and I believe you guys were part of the longest-running study of PTSD. Is it? Well, the feedback that we've received out of that, so to, to address what you were talking about, uh, the numbers. Yeah. So the feedback we've received is over 90% of the participants have stated that they're able to use what they've learned either full-time or part-time in their everyday lives. So that kind of feedback is letting us know we're on time, we're on target. So what we want to do is take that study to the next step and get another university involved with research to fine-tune that uh, uh, so that we can get it to a point where it's peer-reviewed and published. So that's where we're going with that. Once again, it's going to take time. Uh, I've had to understand how... Academia is involved, (laughs) uh, the pros and cons, and that academia isn't always a nice environment uh, to be working with as as it can be very brutal dog-eat-dog as well, uh, which is just part of life. And so uh, coming to realize that every step we take, uh, there's going to be obstacles to overcome. So 
when you guys first started the program, there was two of you, and uh, you guys did it uh, fundraising to get people there. But you basically did it for free. You were volunteering. The um, the new facilitators, the the therapists and the mediators, are they volunteers as well? We're uh, moved to a. Uh, we want to move from say like a mom and pop kind of charity yeah. uh, to a much more formalized, long lasting, sustained. Uh, program where our uh, facilitators uh, are are able we're able to pay them you know standard fees yeah. uh, because like everyone else we all have to be able to uh, pay, pay the, the mortgage <laughs> and so with that we're reworking our funding model right now we have a two hundred thousand dollar shortfall that we've got to somehow overcome yeah. right away yeah. we've got a current waiting list uh, into June for participants. Wow. Uh, every day we have someone asking for the program. Uh, keeping in mind, the program isn't just one three-day program. The program is three phases, three days each. Right. Uh, and so we need to be able to raise the funds uh, because the way we run these programs, uh, CanPraxis will cover the cost of flights. No matter where you are in this country, yeah. we'll bring you to us. Uh, we'll pay the hotel fees, we cover the cost of rental vehicles if required, accommodations, food, uh, in hardships. Babysitters, ship the kids off to grandmas for them. Very much so. Uh, in hardship situations, we cover child care yeah. costs uh, or even kenneling costs for service dogs. Like we've flown grandma across the country so she could babysit the kids so the parents could come to the program. That's amazing. So the whole idea here is understanding that uh, people with this injury may not be able to have full-time employment. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's maybe only one person in the household bringing in any income. So we try to reduce the amount of time they have to take away from work. We try to reduce the amount of time uh, that they're away from home. And with that is the biggest thing is uh, they didn't pay to have this injury, so they shouldn't have to pay to have it treated. Agreed. So uh, with uh, help, from the Canadian public, from some of the uh, local legion branches here in Alberta, from uh, some organizations, small organizations across the country, we're receiving funding. Uh, we need to step it up. We've got to find some more uh, good, solid backing yeah. So, and to diversify that. Uh, it's never a good thing to have all your eggs in one basket, right. which has been a model in the past, uh, and we don't want that. It, it's not good for our participants. Uh, so we're also looking then at, and with this is to uh, get additional corporate directorship. In other yes. words, we need to find some more people who have that corporate world background to be on our board of directors. Uh, we need to add an accountant. We need to add a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, we need people who know how to find that corporate sponsorship. Beautiful. So uh, we'll post all the, the stuff at the uh, the end and uh, also on the social media so it gets out there for sure. Um, uh, where was I going? It was volunteering and then it was, oh, where are you guys now doing, because it was being facilitated out of Rocky Mountain House. Uh, are you guys still doing it up there? You guys have a new facility now? We're moving to a larger more modern facility. Yeah. Uh, so you don't have to use outhouses. Um, <laughs> we're looking at uh, our new home being at the Horse and Hand Ranch just outside of uh, Red Deer. Okay. It is probably the top uh, private facility in uh, Western Canada yeah. uh, uh, of its type. Um, 
it's a beautiful facility, and the folks there are willing to uh, give us uh, special pricing nice. so that uh, they want to be part of this. They want to be able to help the programs. Uh, they want to help our veterans. They want to help our first responders. So they're working hard to find ways to work with us. And Beautiful. so with that, we are in the last stages of uh, establishing our new facilitation teams. One uh, person of that team will be an experienced trauma psychologist. The other person is a veteran or first responder that's a qualified mediator. Yeah. And those teams uh, will be able to uh, attend to these programs. Uh, and then we have phase two programs where the individuals come back where we actually teach them how to ride and care for horses, where we run that out of uh, Red Lodge Guest Ranch yeah. in Bowdoin. And at the same time, we have our phase three where uh, a couple, up to five couples, will uh, go for a three-day pack ride in the mountains out of a base camp oh, wow. where there's no running water, no electricity, and every opportunity for conflict. <laughs> <laughs> so individuals that can have a successful conflict overcome it, basically that's their graduation nice. is if they can demonstrate they can do that. So, you know, that's Brewster Adventures. And, you know, we're working with other uh, uh, opportunities. Like we've got a brand new uh, supporter, uh, veteran to veteran or V2V uh, Black Hops Brewing. Yes. Uh, it's a not-for-profit brewing uh, organization. Uh, by by Victoria, BC, yep. and their intent is to support uh, veteran and first responder charities such as Canpraxis. Awesome. So they're looking at how to uh, set up events uh, where the profits from their uh, brewery will come to organizations such as ours. Yeah. So, you know, and then we have the Canadian Jeep Girls, which will hold That's another... Another uh, 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 show and shine with Jeeps, uh, where funding comes to us. There's, Worth going out to see. Oh, it, it's it's amazing some of these vehicles that uh, that they have. Uh, and with that, you know, we also have something like the uh, Calgary Stampede Road Race. Yeah. Where for several years uh, they hold on the first weekend of the Stampede a a uh, half marathon and a uh, five-kilometer run, and a, a bunch of kid-run events. Uh, and it's a very family-supportive uh, affair. Yeah. And they donate uh, what they raise to Canpraxis. Uh, you, there was a singer as well, a, a girl country singer. And then, of course, there's uh, the all-female country band that's up and coming, uh, really making noise in a good way, which is Nice Horse. Nice horse, that's and, it. Uh, you've got the, the four ladies that are tremendous supporters of Canpraxis. Uh, and it's it's amazing to see the support. Like There's also like the Riders and Cruisers of yeah. Alberta. Uh, every Canada Day, they have a show and shine in Red Deer uh, where the funds raised come to Canpraxis. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we've had local branches from the Legion, like Strathmore, Carstairs, uh, uh, Claire's Home, uh, uh, Kelmar, uh, and, and such, uh, have provided funds for us. So we have a steady uh, trickle of funds. Yeah. But once again, it, it's quite imperative that we uh, come up with 200000 
right away. Beautiful. We'll, we'll post all that stuff. So I don't want to keep you too long. I know you got a big trip tomorrow. We're about an hour and 20 in. So I've already gone uh, over the limit that uh, you set for me. So I apologize. I want to make sure that uh, we get all the information out uh, needed for sure. Um, I know that uh, none of this stuff comes cheap. Renting facilities, horses, having therapists, professional mediators, all that kind of stuff. Um, We want to have the best treatment for our veterans and for our first responders. We want to have the best uh, people involved in in getting them better, getting them healthy. They've served us for their whole career. Um, We need to serve them back a little bit. So uh, we'll definitely post all this stuff. Are we missing anything? I'm trying to think if if I have any other questions. No, I think think we've pretty much covered it. I mean, once again, the whole purpose of CanPraxis is uh, to teach very specific skills for the injured individual and their spouse or their partner or their family member so that these conversations uh, can help them move forward in a realistic way and start overcoming their injuries. We know that there's other programs, therapies, medications required. Nothing will improve at all until the injured are able to have at least one effective conversation a day with the person that's most important to them. And so, you know, like I even have to mention like Hoffman Minerals. Yeah. They've heard about the programs. They contacted us and donated $1,000 worth of product wow. for the horses to help the horses as well. So there's people all over this country who want to help. And the thing about this is recognizing that the funds raised go to the programs. Right. This isn't a, 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 one of those charities where 80 cents of the dollar goes to administration. Right. Um, our last re- review, financial review, showed that approximately admin is around 16%. Nice. So there's very few charities out there that can talk about having uh, an administrative fee of less than 20%. I know. And, and with that, it's our desire to provide the top best programs. It's a national program run right here in Alberta. Yeah. Alberta owns this program and everyone else wants it. Yeah. I I I, I cannot brag it up enough. The the stuff that I learned there, what I saw in the, the three small days were there, following you guys on Facebook and hearing the stories and seeing the pictures. Um it, it's an amazing program. I think that every Canadian so let's let's do some really, really simple math. If every Canadian donated twenty dollars or everyone that listened to this donated twenty dollars, you would make a world of difference to our veterans and our first responders. Don't limit it to twenty bucks, but uh, what is there six million people? in Canada, you guys would have uh, a hell of a good program uh, running all over the country, not just in Alberta, in no time at all if we got everyone on board doing this. So I cannot encourage people enough. I've been to your house. I've been to the other co-founder's house. These aren't just a bunch of guys trying to get rich off of a nonprofit. They are genuine, hardworking um, guys that love first responders and veterans and want to do the right thing. That, that, it's very humbling and to hear you say that. And thank you very much. Uh, all we want to do is help these folks have a life. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Uh, nothing wrong with that. And and thank you very much for your support. No uh, that means the world to us. Uh, and all we want to do is let people know 
that they're not broken. Right. They're injured, they're wounded, and with the correct help, they will recover from this injury. You are not broken, and that's... We want to get that out of the terminology. Right. You are not broken. Yeah. So with this uh, and having the opportunity to talk about the programs, having the, met you and you took your own time to come and sit and visit and understand the program, that means the world to us. And I just want so, to say thank you very much for that. Really appreciate it. I was happy to do it. And so you'll have to come back. Any changes, any new updates, you're always welcome on. It's an easy, I have good coffee, and uh, maybe next time we'll have a beer. That sounds good. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, please, please go to campraxis.com. Go to their Facebook page, donate, help out a first responder that you know, and uh, share the podcast with everybody. Let's get it out there. Thank you so much. Love you guys. i got to shut this thing down. Every time I struggle.